And sometimes I'd be with the task force and you got the Cubans opening up with Uzis. You know what I used to do? <laughs> I used to jump up behind the unmarked car and run at the fuckers. <laughs> and the, the fucking Miami police had to rub it out on me fucking down. I'd never saw the fucking dangers. With, I mean, good job them fucking Cubans can't shoot straight. <laughs> I fucking promise you. <laughs> Keep that in about the Cubans. We have begun. This is podcast 140-something with Billy <laughs> Sutty Sutton. And you would not believe this guy's story. He's got a movie. The guy who's playing him, Luke's in the next room. Cool guy. Love his suit. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know where to begin. So he's from the UK. Ends up as a cop in Miami. In the cartel cocaine wars of the 80s, 1986 to 1996, the Scarface era, ends up, he sat down with Maggie Thatcher and told her... That 86, <laughs> on official meeting, I gave her a now presentation, I warned her about the Yardies, crack cocaine and the knife crime. She asked me three questions in an hour and I leaned across the table. I said, have I got to be a politician before you understand? Am I attired in a nice pinch troop? I said, I've put my life on the line and my own money to give you valid information that crack would come. And sadly, I was proved right, Shawnee. Oh, man, there is so much to talk about. Asher sent me eight pages of notes. <laughs> so let's just go back to the beginning then before we... Um, where did you actually grow up? I born in the back streets of Birmingham. Birmingham. Yeah, yeah. What it was, the family were all Peaky Blinders background. Austin <laughs> Kelly, my granddad, he was one of the leaders of the pack of the Bromford Bridge Race Gang, where all the London mob, Liverpool mob, used to come over to take the turf and they used to have massive battles. So Mary, my mother, and the brothers and sisters came from that very hard, streetwise environment, Sean. And, of course, I carried the blood of Mary particularly, you know, and that strength throughout my life got me to be the winner I am today, 40 years a winner as a recovering alcoholic. And still the winner, and look, he's almost 80, and look at what good shape he's in. We're going back to 1944, selling flowers. Well, what happened? Mary was the, like the young Vivian Lee, six stone. You gotta appreciate she was the godmother of the flower game. Go out at four in the morning, go into the wholesale market. Now, in any buying game, you gotta read the market. You'd have a lot of shopkeepers in there. And Mary would suss if she's gotta buy early or leave it to the death to give the salesman the kick in the cobblers for the buying for the bull ring. So anyway, I was about two years of age and she used to serve the American GI Blue Blue GI Blues GIs in the bull ring. Anyway, what happened? I used to be on the side with my teddy bear, and when the GIs used to come up, have the flowers off Mary, I used to take the money. And of course, streetwise, kid or two, put it in my pocket. At the end of the day, Mary used to have fucking murders with me to get the money back because <laughs> I all thought it was mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was brought up. You see, you've got to appreciate that boring. You had all the barricades. 
they used to stand there at night pitching for the badges for the pitches the next day from 1 down to 50. There used to be fights over it. You used to have the black market spivs selling the denim stockings, you know. Old Percy Mosley, he had a, a drophead lorry. And what he used to do, Sean, he used to go in and have all the chickens that were condemned. He used to go to a sorting yard and get bleach, clean the chicken's house inside. He had a gold teeth, always smiling. And, of course, all the punters used to think they were chief chickens. <laughs> and every time Mary used to go past, he used to say, another funeral order for you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> World War Two era, if you're watching this. And, of course, the St Martin's <laughs> boozer, the old man, God bless his soul, Barraboys, spivs, dockers and divers, tea leaves. I used to be stuck inside with my Vinto and my packet of crisps at five and six years of age. Now, all this docking and dialing, the old man was a wheeler dealer. He never had his art in the flower game. Mary was the, it was her life. Eventually, it became my living. I never had the same passion as Mary. And, of course, listening to all the back slang, the docking and diving, at five years of age onwards, I became very streetwise. Though I hadn't lived it, I was getting educated up to all the antics. And were we getting bombed back then? Yeah, but, of course, um, I was 42, virtually the last one. I can remember to 45... I used to walk through bomb sites, see parts of bodies. It's terrible. And, of course, everything then was ration books, you know, everything. But, of course, on the black market, they could still deal with the reddies in the bull ring. I mean, it had this wonderful, wonderful atmosphere. And you got this powerful character in Mary. I was in all of us, Sean. And you know what? I wanted to be bigger than Mary. And later in my life, with the antics in the clubs and the, in the street game, I always try to overshadow her, you know. Um, um, who was Mary then in relation my to mother. you? My mother. Oh, your mother? Oh, yeah. Always called her Mary. Okay, I see. Yeah, from a young lad. So yeah. she, she, tra she trained you up then in the hustle of the selling the flowers and everything. Oh, yeah. And then you graduate to the wholesale market? Yep. Yeah, in, in the 50s? Yeah. And what it was then, of course, it's the Teddy Boy era. Yeah. Tony Curtis, long sideboard, six-inch drains, nottle dusters, chains, knives. And, of course, there used to be a dance hall called the Ritz in King's Heath, Joe Regan. Now, all the Ted gangs from all the areas of Birmingham with the good-looking birds used to go there. Well, your old pal, Sotty, they used to call me Robber Legs. I became the champion of Birmingham. <laughs> and what happens, these other gangs used to set on me because they were jealous of me. Mm. But, of course, I was with kids there like Johnny Esbury, Kenny Nash, streetwise market kids all could have a battle. So there was always there to protect me, you know. And by the mid-50s then, you were starting to drink and smoke at a mere 12 years old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I fell into the trap early. I think the thing was this, it was about attention-seeking. And 
through later in my life, when I fell through the door of Alcoholics Anonymous in 79, I realised the many mistakes I had, the defects. You know, I was with a big, powerful mother and I wanted to overshadow her. I was always that rebel, that streetwise rebel. But you know what? With all my misdemeanours, Mary never let go of me. She was my greatest friend in my life, but my worst enemy. And where was your dad in all this? The old man, his life was Birmingham City Football Club and Wheel and Deal. Very good, handsome-looking man. He used to take me, like, to the matches at Birmingham. He used to do the spiving with the tickets. I'd meet all the players, you know, Eddie Brown and, and people like that, who were that great side in the 50s, of course. But the old man hadn't got the passion for the flower game. If he was mothering Saturday, mother to be, money to be taken on the ball ring, and if Birmingham City were playing at home, he'd leave it to Mary. He'd be a Birmingham City. And you knew the real members of the Peaky Blinders gang from that era? Yeah, all of them. Because all my pals and all my relatives were from that era. I mean, the stories my grandmother told me about my grandfather... He was supposed to be a cabinet maker, but that was just the front. That was just the front. Um, I, when I've seen the series, it's very, very good to degree, but some parts of it, that blew, that blew out of proportion. But basically, uh, they were very, very strong-minded people. They took no prisoners, um, very loyal to each other, always helping each other, and... That's what I saw, particularly with my mother and my own family. That loyalty, you know, which shone out a lot. So there's loyalty, but there's occasional violence. And now we've oh. got all this knife crime and gun crime and everything else around the world. But back then it was knuckle dusters and chains? That's right, yeah. Can you, can you describe any stories involving those? Yeah, well, I'll never forget one night. I've come out of the rich King's Heath with a particular darling, everybody wanted her, right? And your old pal Sochi claimed her. I think she was impressed with the dancing. And them days, Sean, we used to have, uh, I mean, you could imagine it, Tony Curtis, DA, uh, six-inch drains, you know, not length coats, velvet. And then we used to have these little white raincoats come down to your knees. Anyway, I've come out of the Ritz. I've just gone to walk away, and six of them, Bang, they've jumped me. They've put the coat over my head. And next thing I know, not a dusters have come to the side of my face. I've had that. And then I could see a chain coming out. But in the meantime, I was only like eight and a half, nine stone. But I could stand up for myself. I could stand up for myself. I wasn't the greatest fighter in the world. Anyway, the one who's going to throw with me the chain is miss, miss me and hit the poor bird on the top oh. of the head. Well, that made me more needle. And next thing I know, the law had come and it's broke up. But it was a given thing, Ch not dusters and chains and some terrible fights. So you signed up to the RAF. Can you explain what that, what, that what happened? I was due to be called up, right? And I didn't want to go in the army. So being the clever me, I go to Dialend and I get accepted by the Royal Air Force, right? 
So Mary and the old man, the proudest punch of me, you know what I mean? And the funny thing was, when I left uh, Birmingham, the old man saw me, New Street, the old steam trains, and I've got to go down to Cardington, Bedfordshire. So I've gone there, Teddy Boy look, of course. Anyway, within one day, next thing, they've got me into the barber shop, the fucking lot off. I look like, I, tell you, I look like, well, you can imagine what I look like. And it broke me heart, but I knew I had to accept this. Next thing, we have an eight-hour journey, pitch black winter, to Bridge North. And as soon as we get off that station, all them peak-cap DIs, oh, my feet never touched the ground. And in sea flight, Bridge North, up to four in the morning, bullying the the unit, bullying your gear in case you got two five two board. But I tell you what, he learned me. He learned me self pride and discipline. He did, and of course then they pushed me out to Dusseldorf, and for attachment for six months. And there was more crowd civvies on the camp, and actually rough personnel. And I used to be the old man's driver, standard vanguard, pick him up from the headquarters at nine in the morning, home, pick him up lunchtime back, and I always had the weekends off. And of course, being cheeky Charlie Chester, I always used to go down the town. It's a Dusseldorf. Well, Five Mark Alley was the legal prostitution area mm. of Dusseldorf. And, of course, a lot of the troops, they punted, of course, and I did occasionally. Anyway, I'm at a dance, and I bump into this darling bird, and she finished up the Burgomaster's daughter. And she was a ringer for Christine Kaufman, who at that time was going out with Presley, who was a GI in Frankfurt at that particular time. Anyway, I got involved with her. Next thing I know... She's in the pudding club. Next thing I know, I'm in front of the old man. He shanghaied me back to the UK within 24 hours. Right? My feet never touched the ground. They banged me in uh, to an area called Lavington, Wiltshire, miles out of Flying Training Command. I endeavoured over the years, Sean, through records in Cheltenham to get a link up. Apparently, she left the, the area when the, my daughter was born and they went to the Black Forest area of Germany. But that was one of the big disappointments in my life that I never actually seen her. She was 59, 60 now. So you had a daughter with Ingrid? You had a daughter with Ingrid? Yeah. And you've never seen her? Never seen her. And do you know what? <sighs> a dear friend of mine, I had a relationship some years ago in Birmingham, Netta, beautiful girl. She worked for me selling flowers when she was 13, and I never saw her for years, and I bumped into her uh, some years ago at my son's flower warehouse in Digbeth, Birmingham, and we piled up. And she talked about the Nicky Campbell show where they go back and find distant relatives and everything, but they couldn't come up with nothing. And that that was one of the sadnesses in my life. And I think in my subconscious, when I had a lot of guilt as the alcoholic, I think that was one of the excuses I used 
feeling sorry for myself. You know, that was one of the trips of self-pity I went down. So in 1961, you joined the Cockney Grafters in London. Yeah, what happened? I'd been working for Mary in the ball ring because I was a great blagger. Mary used to be on making the flowers up. She'd give me eight or ten punches a time and he used to blag the punters coming down the slope. Well, Mary was our ta taskmaster. I mean, hard. So... She got me a pitch at the back of the CNA. Now, the CNA those days, four thoroughways, it was the busiest part of the city. Got a nice pitch, having the flowers off Mary, getting a few quid, going out with the troops. But of course, what it was, I was sent to an attraction for pals of mine, like Johnny Hunt, a major player in the cars, Jimmy Sadler, bookmaker, Derek Dugan, the footballer, Big Pat Roach, Astor Wrestler, Johnny Prescott, all these pals of mine used to come and hijack me for a day. But they then would go back to the own homes where I was getting hijacked every day. But I never threw my hands up to surrender. I loved it, you know. But anyway, what happened, the flower game wasn't exciting enough for me. It just wasn't. I wanted to have the big crowds around me. So what I'd done, I had some crap stockings, some crap, crap perfume, and I go down on my own to Oxford Street, and there they are, moed up, these top London grafters who thought they were the best in the world, and they were the best in the world. So there's your old pal. I park outside lines, and I'm selling the snide stockings. Now, I used to have a dicky bow on, right? Where the London grafters, don't tell me where I got it from, I'll tell you a funny story, the up and under uh, fanny. I used to do a slow demonstration saying I was a television demonstrator doing a unique into the street for one day. Anyway, there used to be a spiel. There's a penny. There's one pair free. I did say free. There's two pairs free. There's three pairs. I don't care if you're Simpson or Samson, when you come from Japan or China, with the sleep, ten up the chimney, ten up the roof. These stockings are the greatest you got. And what I used to do, I used to have a nail file. And I used to get the punter to pick a pair out of the box to show we got no special pairs for the demonstration. Well, of course, as I'm getting the package out, I can see there's no feet in them. So what I used to do, I used to get the punter to hold closely. There they are then, ladies and gentlemen, your latest twin one. And there they are then. And the nail fire used to be reversed. And the way I used to do it, they were two-way stretch, where there were only 15 denier. Well, of course, I got mopped, but I always had one cream short. I never stuck it up kids or old-days pensioners. The rest of them could enjoy themselves, you know. But, of course, the Cockneys piled me up. Then I'm in the West End. Then I'm working Pettigold Lane. Then I'm working Club Row, Leather Lane, East Lane. And then I used to go back to Birmingham, restock up, take me a few quid off the flower business. And then from London, Newcastle, Liverpool, and then eventually Glasgow. And Glasgow was going to be the turning point in my life. I took grosses 
of left-handed pigskin gloves. They were all left-handed. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. I took stockings and I took perfume. Well, once they had the perfume, you give them migraine and fucking dysentery. But at the time, they wouldn't have sussed that out. Anyway, I'm working Sockyall Street, New Year's Eve. I've got no outside man looking for the coppers. I'm on my own. I'm taking a nice few quid. Next thing I know, six in front of me. I saw some straight away. CID. Okay, Jimmy, that's it. I said, what are you talking about? Freedom of uh, Glasgow. He said, freedom of Glasgow. We've had fucking road traffic reports about you. Holding up Socky Hall Street. Get your case. Bang me in central, Nick. This is like mid-afternoon. Eight o'clock at night, the door comes open, they give me fish and chips. Next thing I know, all the prostitutes, murderers, they're all coming in. And then I'm in this poxy cell, must have been from the 18th century. Two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> they open up the door. I go downstairs and it's the dog sergeant. And I thought, keep your mouth shut here. You want to get on your toes. Don't get cheeky Charlie Chester. So next thing I know, right, how you done, Bromley? I said, Sarge, I've done terrible. I've got a load of stock left. He said, do yourself a favour tomorrow. Get a minicab. Go work the boozers round the gorbals. You'll take a nice few quid. I thought the fucking gorbals, they'll turn me upside down. I'll be crisscrossed quiz. Oh, thanks, Sarge. Lovely. <laughs> anyway, the next day, I worked the famous Ballarat Market. Right? Them days, they used to have the dance hall, Sean, right on the area. And he was burned down that year. Anyway, I pal up some Scots kids who were working on the proper market side. And there used to be a bomb site where I could work on. So I'm working away, taking a nice few quid. And I've got a big crowd, about 200 people around me. I've looked up and there's four coming towards me. And my sense tells me they ain't come to say hello. They bustle through the crowd. He's gone, okay, Jimmy, 50 quid to work here. So what do I do? I'm 300 miles from home. I said, why don't you go and fuck yourselves? I said, I've come up here, I've got a young family. I said, you blagging me for 50 quid on your bike. I turned to serve a punter, and next thing they know, crowbar over me head. Oh. They've crowbarred me. I've got the lucky bag with the money in. As I fell down, they're trying to lift me up to nick the money. <sighs> anyway, the crowd's dispersed. Next thing I know, police ambulances. I've finished up, I've finished up in the hospital, 18 stitches in my head. <sighs> and next thing I know, I thought, I'm, I'm going back there. I went to the Rob Wright Boozer. I had four port and brandies. I've gone back. All the market kids have come across to me. They said, you know who you've upset? Arthur Thompson's mob. Oh, I'd the, never, the, God, the Godfather. I, I'd never heard of him before. I'd never heard of him before. Johnny Boy Steele. So I'm working away, you could imagine, me head going round and round. Next thing I know, the fool have given me in the morning are back in the crowd. And I've gone like that. Surrender. He's put his hand out. He said, Jimmy, you kept your mouth shut to the busies. You got plenty of bottle. 
you can work here with impunity. Wow. And they allowed me to work there. Years later, I've gone to the Chevalier Club and Kenny Lynch, who used to be a street kid with all the London grafters before he became a singer, he was the cabaret. So I'm having a drink, good drink. Next thing I know, three walk up and I've looked at the one. I thought, you're a top jello. He said, mine, Jimmy. He said, Billy, is he Billy? I said, yeah. He said, my name's Arthur Thompson. He said, I'm so sorry for what happened to you, son. You're a grafter. I apologise. And I had an hour with him drinking. And little did I know the real background of him, you know, to be honest. And that, that was Glasgow. Wow. But the funny one was, you know, I wore Blackpool on the Golden Mall. Now, you being a witness kid, you must have gone to Blackpool, Sean. Oh, yes, I fought Blackpool. Yeah. So, what it was, halfway along, if you remember, you had the boozer called the Vic with a big car park. And on the side, there used to be Jimmy Shapiro, ex Cockney, working the engraving. And the scene was. If I move into the pavement, they could nick me. But if I draw the crowd onto the car park, and it was the boys who owned it, right, and they give me the Mackenzie's, they give me permission to work there, the law couldn't nick me. Oh. Anyway, I've rained for about two days. Next thing I know, I'm speaking to Jimmy, having a cigarette. Next thing I know, 15 law plus come from nowhere. You're nicked. For false pretenses. Mm. I said, what are you talking about? Come on, you're coming with us. Anyway, take me to the Central, Nick, in uh, Blackpool. And they read me the right hat. You know what had happened? I'd sold the crap stockings to the Lord Mayor's fucking wife. (laughs) He said, you've got an hour to get out of the town. (laughs) (laughs) But Liverpool, they chased me from the dock. I worked Newcastle Quay and they chased me. But the funniest escape I ever had was in London. I'm working uh, Brixton Market. Well, as you know, a lot of, God bless them, Jamaican people around there. And I've worked away uh, just off the back end of the market. I'd rain for about three or four hours, took a few quid. I've suddenly looked up and there's these about six to eight women with knives, and they've got the stockings with no feet on, rubbing to fucking towards me. I thought my name's off, and I'm fucking off. I'm fucking gone. Oh, well, yeah, come to give it me. Yeah, yeah. You have a Jerry Lee Lewis story from this? Well, of course, what had happened, the, the Futural Brothers uh, from the late 50s had a club, a legal drinking club called the Bermuda in Navigation Street. Now, Myself and all the market kids used to go there for an afternoon drink. And, of course, over a period of time, the law would come in the meat wagons, smash the door down, we'd all be strong in the back of the meat wagon and get done for illegal drinking. But what had he done, for the few quid he earned, he opened the exclusive Cedar Club, which was in Constitutional. There was five brothers. Eddie was the leader at the back. And every night there, with all the celebrities, stars in there, I used to get on the stage. Now, them days, you had Ozzy, right? Jeff Lynn, Earlo, Stevie Gibbons, right? Stevie Winwood, Traffic, 
All these great Moody Blues, Mike Binner, Danny Lane, all of them had their own bands before they were well recognised. And I used to do Jerry Lewis, Tell Me What I Say, without a pair of fucking socks on. <laughs> and I've gone through drums, I've broke guitars. And what happened? Eddie would never give me the ticket because I was the entertainment. <laughs> and I'd, I'd come out of there, go to the Midland Hotel where Jock, who used to be in charge of the wash room there, I'd have my own locker. So whatever gear I'd left on, moes or bits of shirts, I could change casual. Then I'd walk all the way down the bull ring to front up Mary at half five in the morning in Daniels's. And you know what, Sean? She knew exactly what I was doing hours before. Wow. So what was the 60s like for you then? Well, I think I'll sum it up this way. A lot of us 40 kids, that Teddy Boy era, we were held back. And once the swinging 60s come, everything, the Italian look, uh, more closer air. Um, and we all, for them 10 years, bookmakers, car dealers, dockers and divers, street kids, we all went berserk for them 10 years, because I totally believe we were held back from the 40s. And it was a wonderful era. I could go out in the club every night, pull the best bird, have a drink, be with Dugan, who was the famous footballer, Prescott the boxer, Big Roachy, you know, Alan Towers, Simon Smith, well-renowned boxing commentator. And they were all mobbed together every night because people wanted to make up the time for the years we were our back as kids, Sean. And it was a wonderful era. They summed it up right. The swinging 60s was the swinging 60s. And who was Patty? Patty, God bless her soul, was my first wife. What had happened when I was working with a suitcase in Birmingham, I used to work up by a place called the Subway of Nelson House. And whatever crowds I had, I always noticed this young, petite, very attractive, mud-looking girl in the crowd, right? So one day I blew the edge out and she's still standing there. So I got talking to her and she worked in the coffee bar in the wholesale market. So I used to go down and see her. And she was bored with it. And what happened? She come to work for me in the street as the Rick. Now, a Rick is somebody who's in the crowd. When you come to the end of your spill, she used to come from the back to push the crowd forward, acting like you know, the Ori up. And she was the Rick. Anyway, we piled up and we went from there. We lasted about 18 months. We had a lovely son, Carrie, my boy who I'm very proud of, and Patty couldn't hold me. I was docking here, London, I was all over the place. Uh, she couldn't rely on me. I showed no total responsibility to a young son, which I regretted for many years of my life. But when he got towards six and seven, I took more interest with him. He came to non-league football with me when I was profile for years. I took him everywhere with me. But the sadness was I was so irresponsible, Sean, so irresponsible. And to be honest, it's a selfishness. 
which I found as a taint in my background through the AA programme. And then you were alone for a year until you met Val in 1966, 67? Yeah, no, no, yeah. What it was, there used to be a drinking club called the Hotspot in Exeter Street, just off the city centre. All the car kids, dockers and divers, everybody used to congregate there. Anyway, this one day, I'm with my old pal Tony Almy, member of the lead guitar in Black Sabbath, Birmingham kid, and I'm having a drink with Tony. Anyway, these two glamorous birds walk in. I said to Tony, don't she look glamorous? Meaning Val. Anyway, few drinks. They would work in the promotion game. I said, I'm going to marry you. The first day, she must have thought I was crackers. Anyway, I go from there to a boozer called the Bromford, just outside Birmingham, and she sees Sotty's act on the stage, no clothes on. What she must have thought of me. But she said, you give me a buzz, and we, oh. got, we, we got together, and, you know... And we moved in together before we got married. She had two lovely daughters from her first marriage, Sarah and Tracy, who unfortunately saw some of them bad years and my alcoholism when we were together. This know. is around the Pebble Mill Studios time, is it? Well, this is about 7071. What had happened, Alan Towers was number one anchor for Midlands Today. Along with Jimmy Donegan, who's still to this day one of my dearest friends, he was the godfather of Pebblemore, control all the entertainment, a Geordie kid. But Jimmy was always approachable. Anyway, Towsy says, with your non-league experience, Nicky Owen, who at that time was sports editor at Radio Birmingham at Pebblemore, is looking for another niche for his programme. Anyway, I go up, meet Nicky, and he said, will you do it? He said, you know, I said, I don't want nothing. Don't want exes, don't want nothing. So he said, what we'll do, Sot, every Friday night, you give me a game at the Southern League, the Midland Com, West Midland League, because all these hundreds of clubs I'd followed all my life. I knew the players and board people personally. So it started off, Nick would throw four or five games at me and I'd give my opinion. Then I'd go in on a Saturday morning, I'd have the manager of Owls Owen, somebody from Old Church, all these friends of mine, and he built from that. And in the finish, over seven years, I had my own four, four spots and I gave a lot of betrayal to amateur football in the Midlands. And the ironical thing was I never used script in seven years. Wow. Is the alcoholicism is that causing problems? Yeah, now? yeah. 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 It was greatly coming. Um my old demeanour. I became that gentleman night, Sean. Mm. You know, when I was out with the troops, I was such a character. And then when I went back home eventually to Val and the kids, I was a snide. Mm. And unfortunately, there's the Yanks call it, uh, we call it emotions. Yanks call it mental fucking. When you play with people's emotions. You know, I'd disappear for four and five days at a time, mm. being the character, come back and be a complete arsehole, mm. and mentally destroying the love that was around me. Mm. I didn't mean to deliberately to do it, but that's the road I went down, sadly. And I've always said, 
all the interviews I've done in my life, the alcoholic I've got sympathy for, but I've got more sympathy for the suffering families who go through as much. Mm. And sadly, with what's gone on the last few months in this country, there's more alcoholics and people with yeah. depression come, and my heart and soul goes out to them people. Yeah. What made you and Val want to visit New York? What had happened, we went to Corfew and stayed at the Hilton. I think it was in 83. And I'd been about four years sober then. Mm. And... Uh, had a lovely home, nice style of life. Unfortunately, what was happening, I was people-pleasing. I was chairman of a major non-league club called Solihull. I was on sports councils, crime and prevention panels, about six or seven different, never took a penny, gave that contribution. It's called people-pleasing. Yeah. And though I gave Val a nice style of life, all she ever wanted was more of me. More of me. Yeah. And eventually, we met uh, Chuck and Ada, who were from New Jersey, New York, and in 84, they invited us over. And we had a couple of weeks there. Chuck, ex-Vietnam, ex-New York cop, private eye in New Jersey. We got on well together with his wife, Ada. Now, when he came uh, to 86, April, where Val had had enough of commitment to Solihull, I put tens of thousands of pounds in. You know, really, I shouldn't have done that. And she did warn me. And in the finish, she gave me the goodbye treatment. And um, it was sudden. I picked myself up, got back to Mary's, and Mary said, you're not going back, son. You know that, don't you? It's over. <coughs> Excuse me. And what happened, I was going to AA meetings every day. I needed it. I needed that recharge. Where was the mistakes I'd made, Sean? And I'd worked on my defects for four years in AA. I'd come a long way, but I hadn't done all the defects. Mm -hmm. And attention-seeking and people-pleasing were the downfall of me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean. Anyway... Um, I went to one AA meeting and Big Don, he'd been around 15 years. And I went back to his house in Solihull and I opened my heart to him. He said, look, you're four years a winner. He said, but there's one thing, Sotty, you have forgot to do. And I said, what's that, Big Don? He said, learn to love and forgive yourself. Mm. He said, you can't give that away till it comes with, within. And that was the key. That was the key that great friend of mine gave me. And the next thing I know, go to see the Westman Police Commanders. They endorse the portfolio to Chief Dixon because no British police departments had any affinity with any American police departments, which eventually I brought all that together, which was a positive move for obvious reasons. Anyway, um, Johnny Brooks one of the great non-league, black kid, non-league legends, he took me down to London with Alan Towers, who had found me in the warehouse. And um, very emotional, nine and a half hour flight. I had a couple of coffees. 
get off the plane, go through the bullshit eventually of immigration that years later I never had the same problem for obvious reasons. And I get in the taxi, I'm going to stay at the Fontainebleau. I thought, I'm going to make a fuss of myself, right? So get in the taxi, the kid's going down Highway 95, and I lean across to him, I said, would you know where I could go to an alcoholic meeting? He stops the car straight away, gets out, my name's Al, I'm a recovering alcoholic. That was the starter. He said, I'll pick you up tonight and take you to the meeting. Get to the Fontainebleau, sign in, Dagmara Kamara, who was a senior assistant manageress of this famous, fabulous hotel. She said, you're not here on holiday. I said, I'm here, hopefully to work with the kids with the Miami police. She put me in 1216 next to the president's suite. And also the rates, she charged me a third. Wow. Which I did. I lived in that hotel for 10 years. But here's the, the thing of it all. I ring up Mary to tell her I've arrived safe. I turn on the television and the radio. Next thing I know, on my own once again. Who is he? Patty LaBelle and Michael McDonald. I just filled up. Oh. There I was. I thought, I've had Al. Aye, aye. This has come on. It just come out in America. I thought, how ironical. And next morning, I'm pinstriped up outside the steps of the Fontainebleau. Victor Esther from Pink's picks me up. And that was the start of the journey. And it's through Chuck that you learned about the Miami drug problem, was it? Yeah, what happened, I had a courtesy, rang up Chuck to say, Val and me wouldn't be coming in the May of 86. Yeah. He was very saddened by it, but I, I was quite honest. I said... I've been an arsehole, people pleasing, bang, bang, bang. I said, what's going on over there, Chuck? Because they're always in front, as you know, the yeah. Yanks. He said, have you heard about crack cocaine? I said, no, we've heard nothing. He said, it's, well, it's been developed. The Cubans and Colombians are shipping it out uh, from Miami. Uh, it's an epidemic in Miami, and it's a big fight for the Miami police, DEA, CIA. All the agencies are having a never-ending battle to combat the cartel. I said, Miami's the challenge. He said, you fucking joking. He said, it's dangerous enough for Miami cops. What about a streetwise recovering alcoholic? I said, no, something tells me I need to get there, get that information and bring it back to my country in Europe and forewarn. So I'll go and have a meeting with all the senior commanders of the Westmoreland Police, Les Sharp and Ron Broom. They were both... Deputy Chief Consuls of the West Midlands, they were dear friends of mine. They supported me the years of my recovery of alcoholism. Anyway, crack, don't know what you're talking about, so bang, bang. They said, you've got a mission, haven't you? I said, yeah, but I think it's going to be important for you as well with the information, if they accept me. They endorsed the mar marvellous portfolio to Chief Dixon and they had no affinity with any American police department. This is the late 70s. No, this was 86. Oh, this is 86. Six, no, yeah, sorry. this is 86. Okay, so, because in the late 70s, Escobar was just starting out, wasn't he? 
And then in the eighties, you had Griselda Blanco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. was going crazy, wasn't yeah, she? In, yeah, in Miami, yeah, they yeah, land yeah, Florida, yeah, Mexico, yeah, and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so I'm just trying to picture where what, what's going on in America at that time. So you're linking the Miami Police Department with Westmans, West West Midlands? Midlands Police, West yeah, Midlands. yeah, and more importantly. I've been there to 86 to 88. I used to travel back every six weeks, set up Little League for a month in Birmingham, meetings, conferences, back to Miami. That was my life for nearly 11 years. And what had happened, um, when I went back, I think it was on the, the third trip, I've gone out for dinner with the chief and his wife, and I said, you know, I've got a dream. Martin Luther King is not the only one with dreams, Chief. He said, what's that, Sotty? Could they all call me Sotty? I said, you know what, Clarence? I would like to take some of the kids, uh, the ghettos of Miami, and some Miami cops across the Atlantic Ocean to meet the kids of Little League and link up the Westmoreland police with you for obvious reasons. He said, you can you put that together. It took me nine months, and through a dear friend of mine, God bless his soul, Mike McGinty, was profile with West Bromwich Albion, who was vice chairman. Extra kid, done well, very well for himself. He said, I'll share the exes with you. We'll pay for the trip. And in 88, 13 kids, Cuban and black, never been out the ghettos of Miami in their lives, and seven Miami cops come to Heathrow, towers you got a film crew, we brought them to Birmingham, took them to Stratford, Dudley Zoo, met the kids of Little League. They had seminars, the Westmoreland Police with the Miami Police. So if they wanted to face, surveyed from England to Miami, they'd do it and vice versa. Plus, the Miami Police showed the techniques in the cans, coffee tins, where the Cubans were manoeuvring, sending it to Europe, flower boxes, as you know. And so there was a big positive move I brought together. As someone who was on the run from the police in your early years, did you feel conflicted now working with the police? You know, I'm glad. I think you, over the years, you're the only person to, ever to ask me that question. I think what it was in my own... Look, I was a street kid, ducking and diving, got banged up, whatever. But there, there was no villainy in me as such. And they got a job to do. Yet, I've become a fucking nuisance. There's no shadow of doubt about it. And over the years, some of the kids, PCs, who used to nick me in the 60s and 70s, they later finished up chief superintendents and won a chief constable. And I used to go to all their blue ribbon dues. And it's amazing that over the years, Sean, the Talio Conference Centre, which is the big training area in Birmingham, I have been on it four times there over the years. And the ironical thing I always used to say, for a street kid who was a public nuisance a lifetime ago, now they honour me as an international public figure, how your life turns around. <laughs> but that's an interesting question. I I, I had no, uh, uh, what's the word, regrets joining uh, forces with them. I was on a mission. Something told me to go to Miami through Chuck. If it wasn't been for Chuck, I don't eat Miami. 
So it was Chuck who gave me the starter, and I had that vision. Crack will come to my country. Yeah, from a dollar on the streets of Miami, it's going to be 20 quid. From 10,000 uh, a kilo for 40 grand with the cartel, with the enforcement we were doing, was coming down to 10 and 15 grand. So the cartel were losing out. And what they done, they turned the uh, attention to us where they could get the big dough again with the kilo. And it was all about the numbers game. What was it like then meeting the top police brass in Miami and who was Victor? Victor Estevan was the first Miami copper met who picked me off from the Fontainebleau when I had the first meeting. Now, Victor was the uncle of the great singer Gloria Estefan. When I was establishing Miami, I used to go to the very famous Ford's restaurant. It was number one in Miami. And yes, it used to be very expensive. Oh, you used to have two or three waiters round you. You'd have paintings up there worth a million quid. They had wine bottles, 200 grand, 300 grand, that some people used to buy. I used to be there, your pal, having me Diet Coke. Now, adjacent to the restaurant was the bar disco area. I used to go in there and have a couple of uh, Diet Cokes, that's all. And behind, playing behind the bar was Miami Sound, which it was them days, Gloria. And I piled them all up. And then when I used to switch off at the pool with the Fontainebleau, they used to come and days with me. Now, Victor's wife, she was in the flower business in Miami. And I used to go and see her at the shop. But Victor had a terrible, tragic end. And if I say this to you, Sean, I was lucky on possibly... Five occasions in Miami where I could have got whacked properly. Victor was in charge of all what we called the Christmas trees, the blue and white patrol cars. And this was early 88. He said, Sutter, you're running around with the task force. you never come out with me. I said, I'll do it. He said, well, next week I'm doing the middle shift, 4 to 12. Do the perimeter and check it. Anyway, that week I had a meeting to put forward the finish of the trip, of the Miami-Birmingham trip. So I had a meeting with the chief and Walter Martinez. I went out to dinner with them. On that night, after tea time, the buzzer goes, Walter's face has gone white. He said, Victor's been whacked. I would have been in that car bar for a meeting with them two great friends. These two arseholes, the Estebar brothers, executioners, whacked him. He pulled them down. He sussed the car was crooked. As he's got to get out of the car, they've opened up and killed him stone dead. And bar for that meeting, I would have been in that car with Victor. So we hear a lot about the Colombian cocaine traffickers from this era but you're talking a lot about the cubans yeah i dealt with a lot of colombians the colombians were for me the very very more the businessman of the side of the coke business the cubans me were wheeler wheeler dean but and of course they used to turn over each other 
at regular intervals. There was a spasmatic warfare going on between them two camps. And then you had the black organised crime that used to manoeuvre with the kids we crack in the ghettos. So were the Cubans dominant at one point and the Colombians took over? I would have thought you're right to a degree. I think enforcement uh, regards violence. They were the paymasters, the Cubans. I'm not saying the Colombians never. they done damage. But for me, the paymasters for the violence, terrorising people, were definitely the Cubans. And there's a political angle to it then as well, isn't there? Because you've got the Cuban expats working with the CIA to overthrow Castro. That is correct. A friend of mine, Scott Adams, uh, was totally involved with that. What had happened, uh, Nariago was president, right? He had a strong affinity with Castro. Now, through the feds, Nariago was dealing a lot with coke. Now, the feds had a deal with him. We allow you to perform, but we want you to stick up Castro. And that was the deal, to stick up Castro. But as you know, he finagged. Eventually, they brought him back in chains, Nariago, and they gave him plenty. But that was the deal. The feds wanted Castro. Did you hear that? We got that from an ex-Miami cop that the feds had a deal with General Noriega of Panama whereby he could do his trafficking, but they wanted to get Castro because communism was the bigger evil. That's right. You know, over the years there, I was privileged to go to a lot of Blue Ribbons do's with the chief and water. A lot of charity events. I met a lot of politicians. One politician I met who palled me up, and I palled him up, was Al Gottman. A Cuban kid, late 20s, a lot about him. He was senator for North Miami. Now, I used to go to his office some days, Sean. He'd have all the down and outs, people on the bread line, helping them. He'd done that for a fair amount of time. What happened, he used to take me into Little Havana. Now, all these Cubans who'd come over originally to escape the tyranny of Castro, you know, some families on a raft, 80 miles, they do three jobs a day in Miami to give their kids an opportunity. But then you had the Marios, the Castro, the gangsters, let out as portrayed in Scarface. Tony Montana, Pacino, took him with the marks on him that the feds read, right? But they do a hit to get the green card. That's the corruption part of his all. Anyway, I got close to Al. He endorsed me to my first honours from the State of Representatives of Tallahassee. Anyway, he gets involved with different commissions he went at it for a few quid. And what happened, uh, he flea bargained to do two years originally with the state prosecutor. And his wife was supposed to be free of it. Okay. I thought no more of him. Greed, self-esteem, or do you get threats in your life? Cuban Miami cops, 
90% got corruption for greed. Then there's 10% who had threats in the life by Cuban organizations that killed their families. So you had that situation. Not all Miami cops were crooked. Some were leaned on. And I think to agree, Al Gottman was leaned on. Anyway, he went in front of a judge who I knew, because my closest friend today, and still is, Liam Fatal. He was the top Miami judge. He's retired now. This Alan King had a bit of a reputation. So when he's pleaded guilty, he's given five, not two. And also, house arrested Al's wife for six months. And sadly, Al died last year, 60 years of age, you know. But I used to meet all these Cuban commissioners in Little Havana restaurants. I knew they were, you sense, you're a street kid, you sense they're crooked. These were the arseholes that hired and fired Miami police and were running Miami. Mm. Suarez, the mayor, you had all different mayors, all Cuban stock. Because the percentage of Miami's, and but that's not taking away large majority of decent Cuban people. So we see in the movies where Castro sent the prisoners and the lunatics over. Did that happen? Yeah, tens of thousands of them in Miami from '83 to about '88. They come in, Mario's, and if you saw in Scarface, Freedom City where they all were waiting to try and get the documentation and they were doing hits, why even in Freedom City that you saw Pacino done with that Cuban politician that came through. It it was wheeling dealing. They got there and they started to put the fear of God up anybody. They took no prisoners. I think what amazed me about them, I work with Cuban cops these very brave men and women who weren't crooked, who despised the Cuban wrongans. They really did. But you know what? When we used to arrest these different Cuban organised gangs, you go up to them, they have a gun at their head and there'd be no emotion shown. they look straight through you. And if their children became a danger to their coke business, they pull them with the alligators in the Everglades. No emotion. Now, even the mafia have got codes of conduct. But this mob had no codes of conduct. So you're realising then how dangerous these people are. Victor has been whacked. Is it, are these things starting, you know, families that will throw kids at the alligators, are these things starting to make you think at this point you, you know, this might be a bit dangerous. I might have to rethink my occupation. Oh, were you an adrenaline junkie? I was in the adrenaline junction. I totally believe, and to this day, meeting a great friend like you with this opportunity, the guardian angels were over me, Sean. I totally believe they were over me because I saw more streetwise cops whacked than I was. Mm. You see, it's the unexpected they can fuck you with. You know... It was when I was with the street narcotics, the task force, these were elite, trained like our SAS, but streetwise with it. You know, they could come down buildings out of helicopters with M16s through buildings, but they could also be decoys as dealers on the streets. 
This was the great, and Dixon was the first one to develop this in America. Because what was happening, the streets were took off the Miami Police Department. And what happened, he started the squad, Cuban, Colombian, black, white American, streetwise cops, men and women. And what they developed through Lieutenant John Brooks, who was a white American cop, a dear friend of mine, they developed the reverse sting operations and the buy and bust. And what they was, the sting operations, we would be in unmarked carts in different areas of Miami, down parts of Miami. Eight to ten black cops would have coke, heroin, everything on them, standing in these areas. Now, all the cars, the punters, would come up. Now, they couldn't approach them because that's entrapment. They would come into them. As soon as they got the money out, they were whisked away so quick. We'd have a command post behind where they'd be documented, and before it, they'd be in the meat wagon and locked up. It was called the sting operation. Now, the buy and bust, we used to mark up the dollars, and Miami cops used to go and buy off the dealers. They would make the deal. They'd come away, and we'd go straight in again and fuck them because we got the mark money. They were unique in America. Now, eventually, New York, Chicago cops started to copy them. Major films did. But Miami task force were unique. And I was lucky I was there at that time. So were you present when colleagues got killed by the gangsters? One, Rosano, uh, Willie Rosano. I was in possibly 100 yards of it. No, less. Less than 100 yards. And it's a terrible thing, um, terrible experience. I'd witnessed a lot of crack kids and elderly people in the gutter dead from crack cocaine. And that was emotional draining for me. But the thing was, I fronted it up when I was out with the troops. Once I got back to the Fontainebleau, the emotions had come out of me. And I'd get straight to an AA meeting because I needed that recharge. Um, very, very emotional um, over the years and attended. I've never seen cavalcades of cars from all over America. And when Victor Estefan, I was privileged to go in the police uh, chief's car. There must have been a cavalcade of 50 motorbikes. We get to the cemetery. And as they're pulling him down, three helicopters, Miami police helicopters, come over the top and the rifles were shot. Within 10 yards, Sean, as we pulled away from the grave, CNN, Fox, fucking mics in your hand. What do you think about this? No dignity. You know, it's very sad the way the American media work. Yeah. And re yet Ricky Sanchez became one of my closest friends. He was top with Fox. He was allowed to come out at night with the task force. He was called Nighttime with Sanchez. He used to boom the operation straight direct into the, into the studio, and we became very close. 
over the years. Indeed, years later, when him and Susan got married, they came over and I put them in Stratford for a week at Alvester Manor as part of a wedding present for me. But when he used to interview me, you know the Yanks, they're 100 miles an hour. Yeah. They're not pacey like you or BBC or Sky because everything revolves around the commercial. And I remember saying to him one day, um, this was when they come at me, the Cubans particularly, when they buttonholed me in the Fontainebleau, in the washroom. I was very strong saying, it's about time American presidents brought law enforcement, don't give them 40 years, chop them, treat them with the same content. And what happened, that backfired on me when them four arseholes buttonholed me in the Fontainebleau not many days later. Uh, that was an experience in itself. Could you run us through that? Yeah, what happened? I'd been with Rick on his programme, and he, he pulled me one side afterwards. He said, Sotty, I worry about you sometimes. Don't you think you got in a bit strong? I said, no, fuck him. That's the way I feel. So I said, all right, as long as you're all right with it. But I'd say one point here. I said, you know what, Rick, you're a pal of mine. You do a great job broadcasting in the task force and all that. I said... I've never seen you do a series on the poor punters of dying a crack, the addict. I said, don't you think through media you've got a moral responsibility to take that into account? There's another side of the coin, the imposing. You're doing all the gangster bit, which tremendous, but what about the moral responsibility through the media that you should owe these people help or hope? That's what I said. Anyway, what happened? I'm going out with uh, Pablo and his wife, Doris. Camacho, ex-Vietnam, purple art, crazy Cuban cop, got his own programme on Cuban radio that I used to be a guest on a lot. And what happened? Um, I'm in the wash station of the Fontainebleau. And the Fontainebleau, we about three sizes bigger than this. Anyway... I was always renowned for me white Pandora hat. Next thing I know, <laughs> next thing I know, I've looked to the side, doors come open, two, then another two white Pandora hats. Two stay at the door, I'm washing my hands, right? And as they're approaching me, keep your fucking English mouth shut. And next thing I know, he's gone that. He's come with a Smith & Western to the side of me head. Right to the side of me head. I'd, now I'm thinking, you cheek. I've turned, I've turned into him nose to nose. I said, go and fuck yourself, you Cuban brick. You think I'll give a fuck about you? Go and fuck off. And he was fucking stunned. There must have, well, I was fucking crackers anyway. And the next thing I know, he's pulled the gun away, verbal me, and they trapped, right? And they were cops? No, these were Cubans. Not Cuban cops, they were Cuban gangsters. Gangsters. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, because I've been slagging them off the okay. day before. Yeah. What they done shows you the power that these have got these people. They found who I was. They found out I was staying at the Fontainebleau. They must have done a surveillance on me, right? That shows the power of these people have got. You know, Sean, yeah. you've dealt with them. If they want somebody crooked to find out, they've, they can do his hook by crook. And they found out where I was. Anyway, 
they've gone. And I've gone into the famous Fontainebleau with the piano lounge, all the chandeliers, and he's sitting there, Pablo, Doris, and he said, you're all right. I said, you never fucking believe what's just happened to me. I've told him. He said, now we've got to inform the chief. I said, Pablo, do me a favour. If you do that, they'll put me on the first plane back. I'm getting established here now with the information, everything. Please, please, please don't do that. He said, don't you understand they targeting you? He said, I'll tell you what we do. Doris said, why don't you two drop me off, take him to the department, let's go through some mug shots, see if I can pick him out, Sean, right? So God bless Doris, we're supposed to took out for dinner, dropped her off. We went to the department, three hours, must have been over 200 mug shots, couldn't pick them out. And you know what? That great friend of mine who died some years ago, cancer, never betrayed me. Because if the chief would have known I'd become a liability, I'd have been fucking back. All right, so you've had multiple colleagues assassinated. The Cuban gangsters know where you live. They've put a gun to your head. Are you thinking now that you have to become more vigilant and change your protocol? No, it's it's it made me more determined, Sean. It worked it it worked the other way with me. I I think what I used to do when I used to come in after being at AA meeting, very emotional, saw too much, done too much that day, and I think back and forwards flying the Atlantic fifty eight times, which I'd done setting up Little League, was beginning to take a toll on me after about five years. And what it was, when I used to get back to the Fontainebleau, this beautiful suite, I used to go on the balcony, have a Diet Coke or a coffee. And what gave me the motivation, Sean, was, how could I fuck these Cubans and Colombians? How could I hurt them? What possible way? Wasn't my rights to have a gun and take it on myself to shoot them? That was my business. The only way I could fuck them was going back in them ghettos and pulling another kid away and showing them another part of life. That was the only way my role was going to be. And you did that through a boxing program with Raimondi and Pat Burns? Yeah, well, what happened, the first six months, uh, the chief tested me. Now, Joe and Pat, these two white American sergeants... Joe was just going through a divorce. He lived outside Miami. He got two young children to fetch up. I stayed with him at different times, different days. And what happened, where you got the task force as the imposing, they developed the boxing program for the kids in the ghettos to show them another part of life of putting the energy in instead of selling crack on the streets of Miami and developed the Miami Police Boxing Program. There was the first area was Gibson Park, which was a very dangerous black area. And they had about 50 to 60 kids, right? They'd been going about a year when I was there. You know, they developed four Golden Globes Champions of America. Now, when I saw these kids, they used to mimic me. Such is crazy, the crazy Englishman. I used to go to the corner shop where I had got no rights doing. 
on my own with the kids to treat them some sweets and pop. The abuse I used to get, you fucking white face, uncle, bam, 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 because I stood out a mile, you know. And anyway, the involvement was that Joe and Pat became mothers, brothers, sisters, aunts, bank managers. Wonderful what they'd done to them children. And eventually, when we got to get 13 of them to come over with Joe, he had to go to the oldest one in the family because most of these kids were brought up eight and ten in the room, all got different fathers. You got a sister, a brother, as the figurehead. So there was a right performance getting them documentation for them. But when I saw these kids and the first encounter I had, you can flag it up, African Park, Liberty City, the most dangerous stretch of area in American history. Harlem in New York's like fucking Hertfordshire. And I'm talking about, I have gone in unguarded. Next thing I know, I'm surrounded by 100 kids. Guns and knives. And you didn't carry a gun? No. And the abuse they fucking give me. Anyway, I've stood my ground. There is a circle. I've got no fucking chance. Anyway, the one giving it all this, pick him out. His name's Philip Jackson, the leader of the pack. You fucking white arsehole. I said, hold on a minute. You big mouth. Because I didn't give a fuck. I said, you know, you big mouth. I'm a streetwise kid, recovering alcoholic. Come 4,000 miles to put my life to care about kids like you. I'm not a fucking cop. And I said, you know what, leader of the pack, why don't you get under Miami Police Boxing and put your energy into something than giving it fucking me? Anyway, the kids were amazed. They piled me up. He finished up Golden Globes champion of America and he fought Lennox Lewis for the world title. And he told Lewis, he said, I hold this down and Lawrence Lustig, who done the features of me and Stretchy, eventually years on, he said, my great pal, the man with balls, Sotty Sutton, who cared about kids like me. Aww. What a success story. Did the cops try and make you carry a weapon or give you weapons training? It was asked to me, and I totally refused. I mean, as the private individual, I could have had one at the Fontainebleau anyway. Yeah. Because eventually the troops were cared. I mean, the, the one thing about it, now these task force, and he says he's in the forward, and wonderful and forward, he endorsed on me, Clarence Dixon. These were our gross cops. When I first went into the task force, they thought I was a plant for the feds. Mm. They thought I was a fucking plant because so much corruption going on and ducking and diving. So I've got on the rostrum and addressed them all mm. at roll call. I ain't a fucking fed. I'm a streetwise kid, recovering alcoholic. Anyway, they bowed me up. Barbecues, all to the houses, everywhere with them. It was a wonderful thing to be accepted by these great people. And you got an accolade from Chief Clarence Dixon. Yep. Um, the first accolade come in um, was sort of late 86. Um, it was a contribution award that they'd been so impressed with me. Um, in the meantime, I've been honoured by Suarez. Uh, I've been honoured by Al Gottman from the state, uh, Tallahassee. I'd had about three or four awards, uh, which was very flattering because you, 
I, I never went there to go that, you know. But humbly, I accepted them, and I did. Eventually, over the years, they honoured me 40 times. Um, I had Freedom of Miami. I had a day named after me, November the 3rd. I had only rank a colonel. I was honoured by American judge, Fox News, Ricky Sanchez, of the communities, Elizabeth Vickham, Coconut Cares, six different mayors and 18 times by the Miami police. But you know what, Sean? With all them honours hanging up in my home, which I'm very proud about, you know the most important one, Sean? When I brought the kids over with the Miami cops, a teeth road, they ripped me a letter. Right? And that letter of thank you is the most important thing hanging on my wall. It's what the kids think of me. So how did you meet boxing champion Gary Stretch? Ah, oh, the boy wonder. It's 1990. As you knew, every Saturday morning, I would have six or seven kids from the ghettos, meet them on the front of the Fontainebleau, take them through security. None of them ever swum before, so... What did I do? Take them to the designer shop in the Fontainebleau. You can imagine it. Buy them shorts, about $100 each. It didn't matter. I got a few quid. Take them round the pool, and our spot was exactly where Pacino and uh, Stephen Scott, he called the bird a lesbian. Do you remember that? Well, there were two Leeds kids who were the pool attendants at the Fontainebleau. So they always kept that spot for me, and I got the kids. And you know what? All the stars of Hollywood around the pool, all this mob, and you know them kids had more class and manners and all that mob put together. Anyway, I've got the kids there this one day, and I look up and I see film crews in the corner, and I'm looking, I'm this handsome-looking kid. I thought, that's young, that's stretchy, the boxing kid, because not only was he a great champion, he was the best bird puller. Carly Minogue, Danny Minogue, Rackle, well, he'd had them all in his life. Anyway, he'd been intrigued seeing me with the kids. So he's come over and introduced himself to me. And I was telling him what I was up to. He said, I said, I'll tell you what, if you want to know what I'm up to, meet me tomorrow morning and you can come with me to the department. He came to the department he said, when you get back to England with Little League, you crack campaigns, because I was doing all the campaigns. He said, I'll be by your side. And I've got a few celebrities, friends. That lad, that friend of mine, over 30 years, is my blood son. He has been with me every step of the way, good, bad, and indifferent over the years. He's put himself out to, from LA to come see me in Brixham, make sure I was all right, do the simple things. And I can't speak highly. The one thing I'll say to you, Shawnee, there's one infection going around at the moment. It's not called COVID. It's called snide-itis. 
<laughs> and sadly, I've inflicted South Devon with snide-itis. <laughs> and it comes from stretchy, because what used to happen, oh, you were the playboy with the six-foot bimbos in the 60s sods. I was. I said, you were the glamour boy in the 80s, 10 hours sleep with makeup on. <laughs> and this snidiness <laughs> has developed mm. over the years, oh. and it's become contagious. Anybody close to me in the, God bless the group with me today, they've all caught snide-itis, <laughs> you know. But no, he's been very special in my life, Stretchy. Yeah. Very, very special. And I hope you meet him. I would love to. So you didn't have a gun, but you were in shootouts. How does it feel to be in a shootout without a gun? I didn't give a fuck, to be honest. And I don't say that lightly. I think you said the word adrenaline, and I've got to be crazy to be there. In, I mean, a lot of people in Birmingham, after the divorce, thought I went there to commit suicide because Miami Vice was being portrayed all over British media, as you know, at that particular time. And um, I've, got to be, I've got to be honest with myself. I didn't give two monkeys. I never saw the danger. Now, is that a good thing? Is taking it for granted? Is it a bad thing? I've never really questioned myself about that, John. So you had a colleague called Pablo you mentioned earlier. Yes. Who ends up getting sentenced for murdering a drug kingpin. Yeah. What's the story behind that? Well, what had happened over the years, Pablo, every Monday, used to go on Cuban radio, right? And all the decent Cuban people, he used to say, he's a number of the task force for them to snitch on anybody in the area. Anyway... Mikado was high profile, completely high profile. I had had an encounter with him. What had happened, I used to go to the Cuban uh, nightclub, all dressed up, and have a Diet Coke and just sit down and look. If you remember the, in Scarface, the club Babicum, where they all got the birds and champagne. Eventually, when they try and open the Uzi up and the Pacino. Now, there's your old pal. Unbeknown to the Miami police, what I'm doing, by the way, I'm taking this on me fucking self. <laughs> there's Sotty in the glamorous fucking club, watching all this mob, the champagne, the fucking birds and everything. Anyway, I'm sitting down at the table one day, and the bar kid has half got me out, but he thinks I'm an English tourist. Right At that time, I got the rank of colonel, by the way. And I happened to have my badge on me. So anyway, I'm sitting at this table. And next thing I know, 20 foot away, eight of them with the birds looking over. And the one bird comes over, you dance. So I thought, fuck this. I'm always going to have a fucking dance with her. So I'm dancing on the dance floor with one of the Air Cuban fucking mobs bird, right? And what am I starting to do? I'm going back to the 60s. I'm starting to fucking peel off. And they fucking can't believe it. I'm down to me fucking underpants, if you don't fucking mind. And all the mob are rusting from the fucking door. And, like, one's got me underpants, one's got me fucking socks. Fucking, 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 couldn't help myself. But looking at them perform made me more determined. Made me more determined. Should I have gone there? I really don't know, but fuck it, I went there. 
So Pablo whacked the boss. Yeah, what how, had, how did that what come about? What happened? I'm at local. A pal of mine sadly died in England. This was on the Monday or Tuesday. Roll call. The chiefs come down personally with Walter Martinez and said there was a contract out on Pablo and his family. And he come from Mercado, right? And them fuckers put it out. It's out when the chief endorses it. So I'm looking at Pablo and next thing I know, I get that fucking motherfucker. I said, Pab, fucking be careful. Please, please, think of you and Dallas. Be careful, be careful. That motherfucker, whatever he's called. Anyway, I fly out. What happens the day I fly out to come back to England for the funeral? The task force, Pablo, who I would have been with, and five others have gone to his mansion. He's on the grass verge, right? Tooled up, coked out of his head. And as they're walking towards him, Pablo said, you, you motherfucker, pulling the contract out of me. They think he's gone to lift up. They've jumped him, kicked him to death. Kicked him to death? Yeah, they kicked him to fucking death. Now, Green and all the homicide mob get come straight away, right? They come straight away. They suspend them straight away prior to the investigation. The case, Sean... I gave mitigation circumstances to Pablo's original trial of endorsing them, the wonderful work they've done and everything. Whether they made any difference, I don't know. But anyway, what happened was Janet Reno made herself fucking busy to do them on first-degree murder. Then they dropped it down to second-degree murder uh, with mitigation circumstances, and then it then the trial was a hung fucking verdict, which was the worst thing in the world. So what happened? The feds come in and do them out of state. Because did you know that? Because you've witnessed it. You know you can be done. Uh, one state can blank you, and then the feds can come in and recharge you. And that's what they done. They recharged them. And I think he got three and a half, four. Um, three and a half years? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Charlie got four, I think. Watson got three to four. They were all done in a technicality. But what that done, it destroyed the families. It I used to ring up Dolly Seven. I was, I was at the post house. Now, how do you think I feel? I fly back weeks later after setting up Little League again, go to Doris, go to Pablo, and I said, what more? What can he said, you can do nothing. He said, thank your lucky stars that you wasn't with me because you were the walk up to that motherfucker like I would have done. Now, how would it have happened for the Miami police, British civilian, with them there? Would they have done me for accessory, Sean? Am I accessory to the fact? It's a conspiracy, isn't it? And you know what? Who approached me a year later? David Frost. Offering me big money to tell the real world story. Mm. I told him to go and fuck himself. Yeah. Was the retribution from the Kingpin's guys against the guys who had, you know, were charged with the murder of the Kingpin? Did they strike back against you guys? Yeah, um, in different ways. And they worked through the kids. 
uh, sadly. They went, they went after kids. Yeah, they went after kids. Cowards, why? But they mm. did. Um, did they get any any kids? Did they kill any kids? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. You see, when you're dealing with them with people, it's like the Eastern Bloc now. The way they perform, they've got no emotions, um, and there's no codes of conduct. There's no value to life, which I said originally. I think. For me, for a street kid, I saw gangs in this country, the craze. When I was in London, I used to go to the Double R Club on the Mile End Road, see them, have a drink with them. Then I'll go to the Regency Club, the Barry's had. But compared to, you know what I'm talking about, American organised crime is more sophisticated, right, dangerous and for what gangs we've had in this country, and they're very, very, very bad, they play school compared to the Americans. Definitely. You know, where a kid uh, in Miami wouldn't give me, a black kid wouldn't give me the piss in the wind, they'd shoot me stone dead. Where, when you've had black kids, over the years, they've saw New Jack City. And that was the worst thing in the world. They've had rappers called to cool a copper, called to uh, them arseholes, which haven't helped with the gangs in this country now. Plus the yard is getting based there. You know, kids in this country give you that. But you tell me how many black gangs in this country have been involved in shootouts with police. Can you mention one? Not many, is it? They whack their own backwards or individually. And thank God we don't see that. Thank God we don't see that. But I found... American. I'll, I'll never forget the day, Sean. I'm round the pool with the black kids. This has got to be... I'll tell you what. It was the Teamsters convention at the Fontainebleau. They virtually took over the Fontainebleau. And I'm sitting there, and Charlie Fernandez, a Cuban cop, and Eddie Ritolo, God bless his soul, he writes, died, Eddie, had come to see me. And they wanted to bring the missus is the weekend. And we're sitting there, they're sitting on the side, the kids are in the pool, and all of a sudden, all this New York mob around, he's gone, Gotti's there. And now I wouldn't know these fucking people from Adam, right? And he said, look to your right. You see that man there, elegantly dressed, casual, I've never seen a smarter man in my life, the gear on him. And the mob round him, they they stood out a fucking mile, and I was on the on the corner of him. He said, "You're gonna make plenty of that." He said, "Stay clear of that mob, stay clear." I didn't know who the fuck Gotti was. I never knew who I was, you know. But they were there. They were there for the week. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. American organized crime and the influences of the cartels especially the Mexican cartels now, um, sophisticated. Because you had dealings with the Mexicans in yeah. your situation, didn't you? Very sophisticated, got all the money in the world, they'll find you wherever you are, and they'll, yeah, versus in the UK, it's it, it makes UK look yeah quite safe. I mean, that and the guns as well, the level yeah. of guns. That, That's, that took a lot of bottle from you to get involved in that scene. Oh, I was like, I was like a nerdy business graduate who'd watched too many shows like Miami Vice and The Godfather, yeah. thinking I was a character in a movie, but I was actually putting my head in the lion's mouth and extremely dangerous situations. Was you down to greed, ego, money? What was you down to yourself? 
Danger. Combination of all of them. Um, coming from a little town in the northwest, going to America. The women hear the English accent. They roll out the red carpet and the ego gets going. And then you're throwing parties for up to 10,000 people and you clicked up with the the gangsters and the people of the night, and then you just think you're living like a character in a movie. Yeah. You know what I'm thinking about? Say if you'd have got nicked in Miami. Yeah. You'd have had a me. <laughs> I'd have made sure you got plenty of snow. They wouldn't have took a liberty. I'd have made Lee, Lee Vittel give you 12 months suspended sentence. <laughs> Did you flea bargain with him? 26 months I was unsentenced, and I ended up signing for nine and a half years. I had to do, only had to serve just under six. So I, I actually felt lucky compared to, you know, what I did over the years. Did a lot over the years. You know, that was that must have been a very emotional physical experience for you. Not just for me. I was very selfish. The horror and the trauma that that my family went members went through, and you know, my mom flying five thousand miles to come visit me, and she sat in a little waiting. You know. I was waiting hours in the desert to get in and they got the dogs on her and everything and then she sat there and it makes you realise the stupid shit you did and yeah, yeah. All right, but so... But you come through it, son, and that's the moment and you've learned from it. Learned from it, uh, trying to educate done, young uh, people. Uh, and you've done a lot of good, son. Yeah, thanks. And you should never be condemned for that, son. We all make mistakes, but... Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must tell you this. One raid, we got three opening up with us with Uzis about 100 yards away, and it's pitch black, helicopters over the top. Yeah. I'm with uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Sinclair, and um, he's got me to get the M16s out. Now, these are two ex-Vietnam, right? Next thing I know, they've put the jackets on, and they're walking in the pitch black as the Uzis are com coming at them. And suddenly, they've opened up, Sean. Now, suddenly, it went all quiet. We've gone in. As we've gone into the room, they did some in the pattern from that far apart. Now, as I've gone into the back room looking for the dope, there's a little kitten on the side of the bed. Not moved. I've moved the kitten quarter of a million dollars. I found he was like security guard, the fucking kitten, and the other three have spark out, gone. Good grief. So you started, um, you helped set up the Little League Football Project, and then um, there, was, there was the Answorth riots of 1985. I've become the Henry Kissinger on behalf of the Westmoreland Police. <laughs> One of the great, it's actually, it's one of the greatest fulfilling achievements in my life, bringing communities together, Sean. Yeah. You know, thousands and thousands of kids. That gave me a lot of great satisfaction. Yeah. You know, being a street-minded kid, when I used to go to all these uh, community ventures where I got addressed, the people in the area, Asian, black, white, uh, they knew me as a street kid. I wanted that as a politician. And I said, I want you all involved. I want you, if you're a grandmother, be a coach. I want you to be this. I want you to do that. Bring it together. And I've done that with 21 inner cities of Birmingham. Wow. 11 years. When you were back in the UK then, out of the war zone of the cartels, 
did you feel safe in the UK during that time? Not totally. Um, because um, they put uh, a lot of threats on my life. They put a lot of calls into the Fontainebleau. But when I'm at the post house, um, though I got the Westmoreland police uh, virtually on my doorstep, my main concern was my mother, my son, my former wives, any family member. I insisted the Westmoreland police secure them. I insisted on that. And when I had the phone call uh, threatening me, I knew these were Cubans, but they got bases there. They got bases in the in the United Kingdom by then. Obviously, what was the threat? The threat was, you've lasted long enough, now you've got to go, you English motherfucker. Right? I just bought a brand new XJS, blue, metallic blue, right, on the back car park of the post house, right? I'd had a meeting of Little League, uh, in the restaurant with about 20 people. And I thought, what I used to do, the Liberties nightclub, which came to the front on the Hagley Road in Birmingham in the 80s, a character friend of mine, Ready Steady Teddy, used to be the DJ in the Cedar Club. Mm. Now, when Tom Jones started, he used to sleep in his van outside and get 150 quid a night with Teddy on stage. And ladies and gentlemen, live from Wales, Mr. Tom Jones and the Squires. <laughs> but of course, he wasn't recognised. And Tom always was indebted to the Futurals to give him his start. But of course, the Cedar Club had gone then. Now, I know Teddy used to go in the bar in Liberties. So I used to park me XJFs outside Liberties, right? The kids used to park it up, and I go in, here is Miami Vice, <laughs> Sotty the hero, and Teddy used to jeer me in with all the birds, and of course, all I'm drinking is Diet Coke. He was having what he wants, but he was such a character. But what he'd done, he'd helped me to switch down a little bit from Little League and Miami, and I could have the crack, you know what I mean? Because I was like cocooned. You know, it's no fun when you live in hotels for 11 years with all the dressed-up room service. I mean, the Fontainebleau was a bit special to the post house. But, you know, it's not the right, right way to live, Sean. What happened with the Jaguar XJS? Oh, what happened? I've gone out to the back car park. Jag's gone, right? So straight away, I got on to Bob Morris of Palomine, Chief Superintendent of the Drug Squad, which was based down the road. He said, stay with you, oh, don't fucking move. So anyway, 10 of them, David Nix, another Palomine, great drugs cop, used to be in Answorth Little League, him and his family, Jane, marvellous people. They said, right, you've got to move. I said, I'm going nowhere. I said, if I move from here, they think they've got me at it. He said, are you going to move? I said, fucking no way, who's say? I didn't have them motherfuckers think I'm worried about them. Two days later, they found the car blew up in the canal. But you know what upset me? Me Marvin Gaye tape, what's going on, was in the fucking slot. I was more sick about me Marvin Gaye fucking tape. <laughs> so in 1986, you were honoured... By the Miami Police Department. We've got your badge here somewhere, don't we? One of your badges. It's a, what is it? There it is. What, what, was, what was the honour? Uh, they gave me a rank 
of Colonel. Um, I was the first European and civilian to ever get that recognition. I mean, what he virtually told, I was one of their own. You were one of their own. How many years were you over there for? Nearly 10 years back and forwards. 10 years? Yeah. Do you think you used up your nine lives? Oh, I think so. But I've, I'll come back to what I said to you before as a friend. I think the guardian angels were over me, you know. Yeah. For for all them years, you know. And it's it's amazing. A dear friend of mine, Misha Paris, who you know, been a dear friend of mine, 1996, when Birmingham, Miami, honoured me for a week, the bull ring honoured me in front of my own people, Sean. Wow. And Judge Fatalny's wife and uh, Gerald Darling, who was a major at the time, one of my dearest friends, uh, was on stage. All the stars of EastEnders, Brian Croucher of Palamine, who played Ted Hills in EastEnders. He'd been a Palamine from the Jensen Code in the 70s. And Carly Alman, a dear, another dear friend of mine. Anyway, they were bringing EastEnders to play in the charity match at the Tallyo on the Sunday. And my team was in Miami, Birmingham. Gary Shaw, Shiddy Cowens, Tony Morley, all them great European Cup winners, Villa, were pals of mine. I was a Blue Nose, Birmingham supporter. And then Prescott, Roche, Dugan, all stars played in my side. But the bloody sadness was, Gerald Darling put the kit on to play, never played English football in his life. Only finished up breaking his leg in five minutes. And the best about it, we don't know it. And when they honouring me in front of a thousand guests from the top table, the man had broke his leg and we finished up going to hospital and he had to go back with a plaster Paris. He was at the department for six weeks. Never forgive me. So now you live in Devon with your Jack Russells. Is that one of your Jack Russells? No, no, they died. Sochi and Nick the Lick. What happened? Um, I'd left after uh, after 96, Birmingham and Miami, I was physically, mentally, emotionally tired. I'd been down to Devon. A pal of mine, Tony Scott, used to play with Bobby Moore, Harry Redknapp, with the great 70s West Ham side. He signed for Aston Villa, which was local. I palled him up. We go out drinking together and what happened. Anyway, he finished up signing for Torquay. Now, at the time, me and Patty had finished. My lad was about 18 months and he got a daughter two and a half. And what we used to do, I used to come down to Torquay. He used to have a house in uh, Torquay that his mother come from London to look after the baby. And I would take the kids on the beach in the morning because Torquay trained in the morning. And then we'd pal up. Then he went to Bournemouth and he finished up at Exeter. You know, and that great affinity. But me and Patty had parted then. And I always made myself available coming down to Devon. So I got Devon in my mind. But of course, in the 70s, I was still boozing. Scotty was good looking. 
you got involved with Antlia Redford, who you know married Bruce Forsyth eventually. Her and her sister used to go to a club called the Two Under Club. And, of course, your old pal Sotty was with Scotty. We'd have a drink and one or two birds. So it stood in my mind. So, 96, I got the Jack Russells and I went down to Brixham. I got uh, a place called the Pink Cottage for six weeks. As I'm walking down in Brixham, oh, Sotty, why don't you get a flower shop? But I'm thinking it's 200 miles away. But there again, impulsive, impulsive like I was. Mary used to send the gear on Arctic all the way down the motorway. I had this shop in Brixham, seven days a week, Christmas Day New, done all the charities to the hospitals, the lifeboats, done everything, made an impression, and I lost it after six years, cost mm. me everything. Mm. But you did manage to get a movie. How does that come about? Well, I'd finished with Netta after six years. I'd gone back to Birmingham, but I kept my place in Brixham. She'd had enough of me, and quite rightly so. I think she found me proper birth certificate and realised and never realised how fucking old I was, but there <laughs> you go. But anyway, I come back down, and I'm on my own. My two Jack Russells, Sutty and Nick DeLick, they'd gone through the stomach cancer with me, losing the shop, everything. And what I'd done, I thought, you two are going in the box with me. So what I'd done, Sean, I went to a taxidermist in Taunton called Ed and Tails. He'd done all the... David, he'd done all the big film sets stuff. He stuffed them for me. They're in my lounge, and when I go... <laughs> Them two babies will be in the box with me. Wow. And hopefully not little Miami because he's only four. So what happened was I've now become low profile, a recluse if you want to call it. And I don't know about you, Sean, when you went through that trauma, which you did, sadly, in the States, and you sometimes you think to yourself, is enough enough? Where's my life? And what I've done... I refused an MBE on one of the committees I was involved in because it was more important for me to be recognised in the bullring by my own people than some politician. You might you might not understand what I'm saying, but it was more my own recognisement. So I'm down in Brixham. A pal of mine, Nick, he used to clean the pool. It's a wide-open sea pool where the sea comes over, Sean. At the time, I was having chemo on a Tuesday. I used to go to the hospital in the rascal van, the old rascal van, to Jack Russell's, put the window down, go and have the chemo, go down the pool, tie him up. There was no offices. I had to take our own flask. And me and this kid, Nick, used to clean the pool Nearly 100 metres, seas coming over for nothing a week. But what he'd done, Sean, he kept me focused. He was the streetwise kid who had been a millionaire in my life, who'd had everything, and yet I come back to the basics with a Brixham kid. Can you understand where I'm coming yeah, from? Yeah. And suddenly I do a radio interview with Ben Ellis, a lovely kid on Switch Radio. I'd done it before me and Netta had parted. And um, he said, Such, you still got a lot to offer. I said, son, I'm just drained now. You know, I'm late in my 70s. 
He said, but you proved right about crack, proved right about knife crime. He said, doesn't that ever upset you? I said, no, there's no point in me getting upset as a recovering alcoholic. I'd come through too much in my life. Anyway, what's happened? I'm down just over two years ago, my little coffee house down in Fall Street, Brixham, Miami. He's on my lap because he's only two at the time. Suddenly, this handsome, yucking fella comes up. He said, you sooty? I said, yes. He said, oh, you're still alive. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yes, son, why do I look dead? (laughs) It's just... And the bugger's in the other room, and I hope you say something to him. Is it Luke? Luke, you say something to him. Anyway, what happened? He said, my name's Luke Walter. He said, by accident, I went on a promo about you, showing you all your awards uh, and voiceovers from America. I said, come back to the flat with me, son. Come and have a cup of tea with your old pal. So he's gone down the flat, and I think he was a bit spellbound what was on the wall. He said, you're for real, aren't you? Anyway, we had about six hours together. He said, look, I'm an actor, but he said, I've got a small production company for Force Light. He said, but your story, he said, I don't think there'd be too much to do a major feature. He said, but if we can take some context of your journey, particularly the emotional for inspiration to the alcoholics and the families out there. He said, I've got a friend of mine, Arnold Films, he said, Ryan Jones, he's a Navy kid, he's in the Navy, but he's got a small production company. Can I get him up with other people to have a meeting with you? And that's how he started. They all come up, spend many hours, week after week after week. And I'll tell you something, Sean, what them kids have done is nothing short of miraculous. They've captured the theme, and I think Luke, the very emotional graveyard, warehouse with the mice over me, confrontations with Mary, and the other fellow actors and the wonderful director in Sarah, what them kids have done in the last 12, 12 18 months is tremendous. Brilliant. And from them becomes... The Proctor family, who I sadly have inflicted with Snyderitis. (laughs) I'm I'm minding my own business uh, early part of the summer at Charles Restaurant. Dear friends of mine, uh, fishing people, you know how brave they are. Sarah and Sean Perks, been wonderful friends to me. Dear friends to me. Always make sure I've got a meal and everything because my poke's gone, finished, finito. But it doesn't matter. I've got me in Miami. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden this family come up and we got chatting away and they're from Wolverhampton and the son's in the Navy and they stay in Torquay. And the one says, we find you very interesting. My son, Josh, who's here, does wonderful websites. I said, does he really? He said, well, wouldn't it be a good idea? I said, I ain't got the pay. I ain't got the money, son, to give thousands of pounds. He said, here, my lad and me, we'll do it for nothing. He'll be honour. And what that family have done for me in the last six months, along with their beautiful wife, Lou, and Maxie, never seen me short of anything. You know, I've spread the epidemic. They snide me, I snide them. But... 
Having friendship with those people who give to me, what a remarkable two years I've had. You know, and what I've got coming up next year, you know. And my pal Steve and another friend of mine, Sean Hooligan, who is a London kid now living in Brixham. What a dear friend he's been to me along with Rose. There's so many people I would like to acknowledge, Sean, who have been very special in my life. And it's like today, I feel very privileged to be with a kid like you. And amongst these two other great friends of yours, of filming this, I find that honour, Sean, and I'll say this to you as a friend, with all the sadness of this lockdown, the amount of alcoholics have become, sadly. Mm. You know, I hope today that a streetwise kid, playboy, play-up merchant, sotty, I hope to think I've given inspiration to people out there. And if it's only one family... If I've reached out to one family through your auspiciousy of your kindness, then I've achieved something. And I'll finally say this to you. In Peyton, Steve and me, wherever the weather, we go to a London friend of ours, Mick, and his dad, Dick. They've got the proper coffee house on the front of the seafront. And unfortunately... Anybody who comes there now goes away with snideitis, <laughs> you know, and they, whatever the weather, I've got such a simple life now, but it's been took over the last two years, you know, and next year, and but it's a great feeling. Um, I'm nearly 80 now, but I'm still a winner for uh, one day at a time as a recovering alcoholic, and with all the mistakes I've made in my life, particularly to a mother and a wife and family, by coming back the winner, I'm sure they love and always will love me for the character I'm still today. Because never lose your roots. Never forget where you come from. And that's the key. And you know what the key is? Laugh at yourself. And I certainly do a lot of that. Wow, you've got an amazing spirit, Sussie, that's for sure. You have good karma that's just keeping you going. I can see that. And maybe from all this um the daughter of ingrid perhaps will find out about you online and get in touch somehow it would be nice yeah it would be nice that's yeah. one of the sadness but but what could i do yeah. you can't beat the system you can't beat the system you can you can deflate it but you can't beat it i thank you for coming all this way from devon and for just taking us on this amazing journey People are going to put all kinds of comments below this video, and I'm going to put links down there. What is the name of your movie going to be, and where can people watch it? Yeah, it's called The Legends Plays On. Yeah. And originally, the 100 invited guests, which you're invited to, obviously, was going to be August this year. But with mm. the lockdown, we've gone to May the 3rd, sorry, March the 3rd. Yeah. Now, a dear friend of mine, Brett Gardner, is the Capitanario of the Talio. We've gone provisionally for March the 3rd, but if we've got a backing for a month, but I'm inviting different friends from the media and personal friends and family to be there. It'll be only for you to be there. Stretch is flying in uh, from LA and a dear friend of mine who writes, I don't know if you've read the marvellous articles by Professor Karchin in the Birmingham Mail, they're on the website. They used to have a Radio WM 
for over 20 years, a dear friend of mine. He's a top man on history in the West Midlands, him and his family, Kay. You know, they were very special. And um, all I'm hoping for now, that from it, we stretch his connections, we get a major input. He's very big on Netflix and Lionsgate Stretchy with the Ronda Rouse story he produced and directed himself. So I'm just hoping that, and all I want from it, all these great set of kids from the company and the actors, they get major exposure because they've got talent. There's no shadow of a doubt about that. They've got talent. And also for what uh, Josh, Matt, Luke, Lou, have done for me regards the website. I want this film to inspire people and give people hope. That's the word, Sean. Give people hope that we're not all losers. You know, there are winners. I done an interview years ago with George Best on Central Weekend, right? And you know the sad way that George went, you know. George had all the bottle in the world kicking the football about and he had the opportunities when he was off, but George wouldn't accept it, sadly. And what a talent and a nicer kid you could ever hope to meet, you know. And when I'd done that series with him, in the audience was Johnny Sprite, died an alcoholic, giving it large. Keith Chetwin. But apparently, he was about six months sober when we done it in 1996. I think he died sober. I think Keith died sober. But it's such an insidious illness, and it's so available. You haven't got to buy it off street corners like dope. And you know the availability. Yeah. But it does disturb me, particularly what's going on. There's going to be more families having the imposing of alcoholism. Yeah. And that's sad. Well, you talked about recognition for Luke, etc. Do you think we should bring Luke in and have him sit here oh, for a few? Oh, yes, certainly. Luke. Don't he look a smart lad? Yeah, he does. You yeah. all right to come in for a few minutes, Luke, and, yeah. and be filmed? Thank you. Thank you. Just, just sit on here. I'm going to ask you a few quick questions. Alrighty. That's it, yeah. I wonder why did you get the trailer? Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, I watched it the other night. Thank you. Two days doing it. <laughs> it wasn't just me, Bill. <laughs> Got a whole team. <sighs> Hair, good. White, good. Eyeline, good. All good. <laughs> <laughs> Everything good? All right. So here we are with... Do you want to just put, shut that door a little bit? All right, so here we are with Luke, who is acting sooty in the movie. And just a few little words with Luke then before we close. So how the hell did you get involved in all of this? Oh, God. So uh, depending on really how much backstory you want, uh, it can be either very long or very short. Which version? We're going to try and keep this like five minutes. Five minutes. Okay, yeah. so... I was a bit, a bit of a loose end. Yeah. Sort of realistically, like living in Devon, trying to get acting work. It's not really much about. And yeah. sort of when you get to, you know, that sort of bit, you know, you're trying to work as an actor, trying to eat. Mm. You know, you're kind of thinking, I need to 
be doing something. And I was sort of looking, like actively looking for a story, just something to make. So I was thinking, there's yeah. no work. You know what? I'll make some work. And I just, I came across this story on YouTube. I think it was like Billy Sutton, A Secret No More, some convolute or something like that. <laughs> and I just sort of was looking at it going, this, oh, this can't be real. It's got to be, you know, completely and utterly fabricated. Yeah. Um, but I, I sort of started digging. I saw the Birmingham Mail stuff and just sort of thought, well, maybe there is something to it. Either this is, you know, what it appears to be, or he is the greatest con man in the world. Either way, there's a good story there. So I, I carried on sort of searching about, looking about, and I sort of thought, well, he lives in Brixham. I live in Brixham. So I'd wander around, sort of asked a few of the people who sort of did the theatre circuit around Brixham and you know, all the people I knew, and they were just sort of like, oh, I know the name, I know the name. And as I carried on, and sort of, a friend of mine just went, oh, Billy Sutton? Hey, that coffee shop down there? I was like, well, now? Well, probably. Well, I'll go then. Um, so I toddled along to this little coffee shop, and I saw him, and just came out of my mouth, and I was like, oh, God, he's still alive. Um, which wasn't <laughs> the greatest first impression. I sort of thought, oh, I've bungled this. Um, but he took it on the chin, great humour. Um, he just sort of, you know, started talking away and I mean, you've spoken to him. You just, you get sucked in, don't you? He's just such a great orator. He does have such a great aura as well. And well, his, yeah. his, his wit is amazing. Uh, I mean, he runs rings around me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I need a script most of the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, started getting information from him, saw all the awards and everything that he'd won, the badge, you know, the plaques, photos of him and Gary and Chief Clarence Dixon, started doing research into, into Clarence Dixon. I mean, he's such an amazing man in himself. I could make four films about him before even getting to Billy's story. Um, just such a rich sort of lore that's real. And I just sort of thought, well, this is too good an opportunity to pass up. So we got talking about it. I sort of started, you know, being realistic. Because realistically, I'm not I'm not Warner Brothers. You know, I, I couldn't shoot all the shootouts and car chases and all that sort of thing. So I thought, what's the most realistic thing I can shoot and I just sort of thought well how the bloody hell does a millionaire street trader go from that to dying in a warehouse to Miami so I just sort of cut down to try and do this 15 minute short the runtime is around 56 minutes not 15 so I missed the mark a bit on that yeah. <laughs> um I just started writing I pulled in Ryan John Sarah Hogarth um you know we started writing it and sort of bouncing ideas and just building and building and building on this. And we were just sort of like, it just, we made a mountain. Well, we made a molehill out of a mountain and then it was mountain again. Uh, very much just sort of figuring it out and you know, building on all this story. And there was just so much there that we couldn't not do it. And then, you know, we just started rolling. How do you enter the spirit of him to play him? Um, well, I mean, there, there's, there's two ways. Uh, Realistically, the way I did it was not the right way of doing it, um, because very much I kind of accidentally became an alcoholic <laughs> for a period of about two years. Uh, not like full on, you know, yeah. actual illness, like not even real alcoholism, but it was just getting that character and getting the mannerisms, and the, the habits started coming out. And yeah, you know, I, I just sort of thought, well, what would he be doing right now? And then it was sort of like this lifestyle is intoxicating it's i mean it's it's so easy to see how he fell down the hills he fell down yeah um but yeah just getting into that head i mean he's touch word now he's he's brilliant he's fine um but that headspace especially 
1979 in that warehouse. Christ, it's it's not a fun place to be. And I don't think any amount of preparation could get anybody there, like, safely or well. I, 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 I think I've done a very good job. I like to think I've done a good job. I can at least stand looking at myself on the edits. Um... And, you know, from, from everything that everyone's told me, you know, I've managed to pull it off. But, I mean, God knows how I, I did, <laughs> realistically. it's it's It was a, a terrifying and daunting concert. I mean, from, from, the, from the get-go, I didn't even plan on playing him. I had always had in my head, right up to pretty much day one of, produ- of shooting, you know, we're going to get someone else in, we're going to get someone else in, we're going to get someone else in. And then it was like, oh, Luke, can you do the read-throughs? Yeah, that's fine. We're going to get somebody else in. Oh, yeah, no, action. Why am I playing him? <laughs> Nineteen seventy-nine in the warehouse. Yes, run through it. Okay, uh, cold, mostly. That's because um, well, if if we talk about what happened with Bill, um, you know, he just had a massive fallout with his mother, huge blowout, huge blowout with all his mates down the pub. Everything had gone royally tits up. Really, like I don't know if you've ever fallen out with every single person you ever know all at once, <laughs> but that's what he did. And I, I, I genuinely think he went there to kill himself. Um, I mean, he very nearly did kill himself. I mean, there's, there's no way in hell he didn't have at the very least severe alcohol poisoning. Um, and he just, yeah, he, he had the fallout with his mother, his friends. He disappeared for three days um, from his own memory, which in all seriousness is hazy at best from that point in time. We've had to piece it together piece by piece. Um, he went to his father's grave. Um, to try and find some sort of retribution or something like that. I mean, that's the very least how I played it. Um, and, you know, it was from his words, begging his father for forgiveness, obviously no response. Um, but sometimes, you know, it's sort of screaming into the void, I suppose. And then he went to his flower house. Now, bearing in mind at this point in time, the man is loaded. Um, he has the money to go and carry on drinking himself to death in a luxury hotel room. And he's gone into his flower warehouse and he's pulled out a box, his stash of liquors that are just like the dregs of stuff. And it's, you know, God knows what's living in it or has died in it. Um, He said, you know, he's told us um, covered in mice, like hundreds of them, like biting him trying to drink the booze out of his mouth, covered in feces, and his you know, his own just exits um, from all of the poison that's in his system. And he's there for three days in November, in the middle of Birmingham. No one knows he's there. Until Alan Towers, of all people. I, I don't know if many viewers would really remember, but... If you just look up Alan Towers' BBC resignation, you will understand the character of the man. He did not mince words. He was a a titan at the time in the broadcasting world. Um, But until he found him and he gave him the straight talk and he said to him, is this worth it? And I think, yeah, had it, been had he been 10 minutes later it'd have been too late wow it's a really powerful story thanks for sharing that and i think we've got the parallel message here not just you know was this an adventure hearing this story today 
the importance of people out there right now, particularly maybe going through depression, anxiety, hitting the bottle and where it can end up. But we hear stories like Sutties and what you just described there so brilliantly. Um, these stories move us. I feel moved and it makes us think twice about our own lives and our own actions. And I hope people out there who have watched this today are not just gripped by the real life story of Sutty, but you also, if you're going through things, perhaps it puts your own troubles in perspective and inspires you to do better. So thank you very much. That's quite all right. For coming on, Luke. We're going to put Sutty's links in the description box. We'll put your links as well. Thank what you. What's your preferred method of people contacting you? Um, are you on Insta and all that stuff? Well, not historically great at the social media side of things. So I do have a website that people can contact us through. Okay. It's falselightproductions.com. Um, nice and easy. F-A-L-S-E-L-I-G-H-T. All one word. Okay. Um, there's an instant messaging service on there. Um, that is probably the easiest way to get to us. Or you can message us through Facebook as well. Same name, False Light Productions. So all those links will be in the description box. Hope you've enjoyed this. Please let us know in the comments below the video what you think. Huge thank you to all people who've gone down the description box and checked out our other links, our playlists, our socials, our donation links. And we look forward to bringing you another true crime podcast soon. Cheers, Luke. Thanks thank very you much. very much. Yeah, yeah, well done. Yeah, great.